1-800-102-102 Call Late Night Talk on 011-883-0702 14 minutes, 14 minutes after 11 o'clock, Ibrahim Fakir and Professor Iva, Ivo Sarakinski join me as we um, analyze post-election babalas. Prof, good evening to you and thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Good evening to you and listeners. Your pleasure. Much appreciated. And Ibrahim Fakir, thank you very much, sir, and I uh, appreciate your time as always. Hi, good evening, Aubrey, and evening to your listeners and my fellow panelists. You guys must be very, very tired. Hey, Ibrahim? Um, yeah. <laughs> tired, but not bubble-ass. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. You, you you got it right. You wrote an uh, an article on the seventh of May. You got it right to the percentage almost, Ibrahim, uh, when you were forecasting the uh, the uh, election results. And uh, what, what what were what were the reasons? What was behind you getting it right? Um. Well. As opposed to the pollsters, uh, I would say this with with, with great humility, that uh, both Ivor and I were a little more humble in, in what we were trying to do. We were, there was no hubris involved, and I think that's an important consideration. I hope some of them are listening. Um, so there was no hubris. But, you know, we we spell out in the article what we did, and I think our method was fairly rigorous. We basically took previous election results, so we're not speculating, we're not asking people what they think, which has inbuilt biases, we're not surveying a bunch of people, we're taking actual voter behavior and actual results. So we took the pattern of past elections. We didn't want to take the 2016 local government elections because the system is different, the turnout's different, but we thought we could perhaps for this time, because it was such a signal election in which there was a sea change, we should use that. So we used that as well. We then tempered that with some of the trends, and this is where you move away from a bit of science. So here you in the realm of a bit of speculation, but there's still some hard data. We tried to look at levels of trust and confidence in public institutions, in uh, political parties, in political leaders. And then we looked at the turnout data, and we tried to jumble all of that together. And, I mean, you know, you don't know whether someone's mistrust or lack of confidence in institutions is suddenly going to translate into uh, them staying away or them participating. So we tried to kind of speculate on some of those things, but at least the hard data we had. And we modeled it on that. And and I think that's why we were fairly close. Prof. uh, Ivor Sarakinski, if you had been listening to this platform over time, let me say for the next... for the six months leading up to the elections, if you had been uh, looking at uh, the Twitter streets, as it were, uh, I think many people would have been convinced that the ANC would have been what the BLF is right now. Um, And I suppose what Abraham is talking about, about the fact that you removed all of the speculative stuff or the hardcore speculation out and you stayed with, I suppose, scientific data is probably part of the reason why you guys were able to uh, hit the nail on the head. Let's look at what is going to happen based on similar thinking. Now that we have these results, President Cyril Ramaphosa is said to have received a poisoned chalice by some people. 
that uh, as much as he can be happy that he has uh, almost saved the ANC in these elections, um, he has his job cut out for him. Does he have the wherewithal to provide policy direction, um, give the kind of confidence that's required to get South Africa going, as it were, Prof? On the one hand, we hope so, because <laughs> uh, if, he, if he's unable to do all of those things, then the uncertainties and concerns of the pre-election era will continue significantly into the post-election period. Yes. So there are, there are a whole range of factors that one has to look at to, to see what his prospects are. Yes. And the first one is to say very clearly that he's not acting independently of the ANC. The whole decision process and his whole leadership is bound by the way the ANC works and by the power dynamics within the ANC itself. So the idea that he's outside the ANC, that he'll have a mandate, that he'll be able to do all the difficult stuff is naive. He's not a messiah. Um, He's bound by process. He's also bound by process in government, the public service regulations. And those are very constraining. So it's not that easy for him, for those two reasons, to move as quickly as he would like or as many people would like him to move. He's going to have to navigate his way through complicated decision processes and regulatory frameworks. And the third factor is he's going to have to deal with serious internal opposition. Um, As jail time looms with the information, the commissions, the enemies inside the ANC are going to push back and push back really hard. And and this might be a, a, a serious restraint on what he can achieve. So we're watching the cabinet announcement very, very closely, because that's going to give us a very good indirect indicator of what the power dynamic in the ANC is. So the rumor is it's going to be trimmed to 25 cabinet ministers, and we, we wait eagerly to see who those 25 are because that will give us a very good sense of how bold he is in taking his clean-up uh, initiative uh, through in terms of ANC structures and processes. They're going to be winners and losers in the cabinet, and the losers are going to fight back. Nice job to have a few cabinet Ibrahim, if if those rumours are correct, who do you think is likely to lose out? One, two... The internal fights that will obviously ensue in the ANC as a result of that are going to be something to behold. To what extent will those fights then hinder service delivery, which I imagine is probably a very, very, very high priority for the president in order for him to, I suppose, um, manifest the hope that those who have supported him in these elections um, have placed upon him. Aubrey, there's there's two things I want to say before I actually answer your question directly. And as is want uh, amongst us as South Africans, we we move on from conversations far too quickly uh, without exhausting them. And I think we must ask a serious question about what mandate Cyril Ramaphosa has considering Mm. that, that, that our turnout level at this election was only 65%. Now, this is not just a concern for the ANC and the president's mandate. It is also a message for all the political parties, every single one of them. 
because Ivo will tell you, and he's done some analysis of of, of voting districts in Joburg, and it shows that even DA, um, erstwhile DA supporters, didn't actually turn out this time to vote for the DA. Mm. Now, why is this? Why is this? And it's, it's answering your question about service delivery uh, in a roundabout way. Why is this? It is because people are viewing political parties as being overly concerned with their internal squabbles, with their internal fights. And when you ask the question, how is this going to hamper Ramaphosa when, you know, the guys who lose out from cabinet appointments, what are they going to do? Well, I was right. They're going to fight back. And they're going to fight back within the structures of the party. So when he says we're going to look at the cabinet very closely, we're going to look not just at the cabinet appointments, we're going to look at the process of the cabinet appointments. And the process is going to tell us a lot. So if you hear Kosatu saying, hmm, we weren't consulted, or the SACP saying, hmm, we're not represented, or the civics saying, ooh, where's our people? That's going to be your first indicator. Then you're going to have broader factions of the ANC saying, but the president is doing what President Mbeki did. He's centralizing power, and he's appointing people without consulting us. So if you start hearing those noises, then you know, gosh, the guy's in a bit of trouble. He might still be able to navigate his way out of it, but that will be the first indicator of trouble. Now, who's going to lose out? Well, obviously, he would not want those people who are tainted by um, many of the court cases which happened in the previous administration. And I'm talking very clearly here about the former Minister of Social Development yeah. who, who was hauled over the coals by the Constitutional Court, or Nomvula Mukunyan. So those kind of people are people he might not want in the cabinet. But here's his constraint. The, the Women's League... Well, so so I spoke about all the other alliance partners. Mm. Here you will have a league of the ANC, which will be saying, hmm, where's our people? Mm. So you see, that's where his constraints are. Now, when you come to the question of service delivery, you know, Ramaphosa can do everything he potentially can at the top, with the tw- even if, if, if I was right and he trims it down to 25, and we all take a very positive message from it. What about the rot which is set in at local government? Yeah. 284 municipalities which are not actually doing what they're supposed to do. Now, coming back to my very first point about the lower turnout and linking that to municipalities, if there is a continued level of unresponsiveness, not just unaccountability, but unresponsiveness, then not only are you looking at a declining level of participation, you're also looking at breakdowns of service delivery. And we, in a previous piece that Ivor and I did together, pointed out that when that starts to happen, people will start to procure on their own. There will be greater informality, and that informality is going to reduce the level of social solidarity. People will start retreating into their primordial identities. You will find greater re-racialization mm. uh, and a lack of reliance on the state because the state simply won't be trusted. And we started seeing sort of signs of that from the Western Cape during the time of the blackouts where the Western Cape uh, government and uh, specifically the Cape Town administration was starting to talk about um, getting power directly from IPPs instead of using um, ESKIM. Uh, Is that the kind of thing that you're talking about when you talk about the fragmenting of the, uh, at least the procurement process as we've understood it uh, thus far? 
Well, that's partly it, but also in the economy. So a greater number of people in the informal economy rather than the formal economy without any of the protections that formal jobs give you. So medical aid, pensions, and so forth. Now that then starts to have an impact on the amount of uh, of, of 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 money available in the fiscus, the tax take, uh, the size of the pension fund, what the public investment corporation can do, and so on. So there are all kinds of spillover effects. But you know, procuring goods and services is just one. When you have people moving out of formal employment into the informal economy, that's another, and it has its own consequences. Third, is that people start, and you're already doing it in the middle class. You're procuring health, education, even security, where you know the yeah. state is meant to be the only armed um, force around. You're even doing that on the private market. So people will start doing that on the informal market, not just through the private sector, but in the informal market through self-organization. And that's completely unregulated. So the the arm of the state will simply be unable to regulate. So you you get all kinds of spillover problems which are going to start to to uh, to manifest. And one of the most pernicious of those would be vigilantism. Yeah. Uh, I, Iver, uh, Ibrahim speaks of some of the signs that would be, I suppose, problematic for a... An, insta- an unstable sort of administration and uh, one of them, of course, being the internal wranglings within the ANC. And we saw it happen uh, over the weekend when Ace Mahashule and Figil Balula had their, you know, their argy-bargy. Uh, to what extent do we see that, that, uh, that argument between Figil Balula and um, Ace Mahashule? Uh, to what extent should we understand that perhaps as a beginning of what Ibrahim Fakir is talking about, the signs of, yeah, of, of, of the problems of incumbency for, for um, Sil Ramaphosa's um, administration? At, at one level, it seems like uh, it, it's a major sign of what's coming. At another, if one looks a bit more closely at it, it seems as if that uh, spat between uh, Ace and and uh, Fikile uh, has got more to do with the personal dynamic. Mm. In that, at the at the Nasrec conference, uh, uh, Mr. Mbalula said uh, that Ace should never have got the job, and I think that the, the personal public statements of late are connected to to that initial event. But it does also give us a sense of how the new camps are lining up. So it's no longer simply Zoomerites. Mm. It's, it's, it's a whole range of people that are falling into, in, into two broad camps, and, and those personalities are indicating where that uh, uh, line is. And the interesting thing is that you've got people that are shifting allegiance from one to the other, and we're not sure which one they started off in and which one they're ending up in. So it's an incredibly fluid uh, situation and 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 uh, difficult to read. And that's why we need this cabinet announcement, because that will start sure. to enable us to understand it. I'd like to invite you, if you're listening to this conversation and are having your own internal conversation about what we're talking about on 11 021 So we've been talking about the fact that Cyril Ramaphosa and the ANC have received a uh, mandate to govern the country. What exactly is that mandate? I think that's the question that Ibrahim Fakir um, is putting to all of us to really understand what this means. What is the mandate, uh, really, 
that um, uh, President Ramaphosa has received? Uh, and uh, does it necessarily fall in line with what you think it is? Give me a call, 11883 072 or 021446-0567. Why is it important, Ibrahim, for us to be clear in our minds what this mandate actually is and what it means for us? Uh, I think it's simple because it must either temper our expectations or lower it a little or heighten it a little, depending on, on, on what we expect. But I mean, we, we and, and certainly don't want to be a doomsayer. Um, I'm simply suggesting that we should perhaps temper our expectations of what uh, President Ramaphosa can do and what's within his power. So it's clear, and we don't want to be churlish and say that the ANC and the president don't have a mandate. They do, a mandate of 50, 57%, um, which, which, you know, is a clear majority, so they must go ahead and do so. I just have two riders. A, that the majority won't be used as it was in the last parliament in the crudest possible way to stymie oversight and accountability and responsiveness, that it will be used more responsibly. That's the first. The second, and I was already alerted to this, in terms of our expectations of what we have, what President Ramaphosa can do, he is constrained, not just by the internal factionalism, but also by process and procedure. In terms of what emerges in the commissions, the respective commissions, and Clearly, he, he had the ability to act. He's done so when it came to SARS, when it came to the NPA, when it came to the prosecutors. Um, and that kind of decisiveness, I think, will be taken positively. But he will have to display a similar level of decisiveness going forward. And we don't know whether, because those decisions were, secure, were squarely in the ambit of the President of the Republic. Future decisions may similarly be so, but not all of them will be. He will have to navigate the processes, not just in the state, but also in the ANC. And if they hamstring him, then he's going he's, he's gonna to take a little longer uh, to deliver what he's supposed to. The fourth area, uh, in terms of our expectations, is there's this sudden burst of enthusiasm now because in the, from the investment summit and the job summit, there were all these promises made. But those green shoots don't come alive now. Mm. The sun doesn't shine on them suddenly. and You're not going to reduce unemployment from a real figure of 35% down. It's going to take a while. So firstly, those, those investments have to materialize. And once they materialize, it will take some time before the jobs come on stream and so on. So it's always, always simply saying, or at least I'm saying, is temper expectations around what you expect from the let, let me Let me ask you to t- take us into your confidence, Ibrahim. I suppose esoterically, what do you think the, the uh, mandate for President Suramaphosa and the um, a- ANC is? It's simply, in my view, stabilization and recovery. There's nothing more than that. So, so if you take stabilization and recovery as the themes of what he needs to do now in the next three or four years, it's clear that he will need two terms. Whether his party and his members are going to prepare to give him that is a different question. And, of course, indeed, whether the electorate's prepared to give him that. But this term, at least the next three years, has to be stabilization and recovery. That's it. Nothing more. Professor Ivar Sarakinsky, what are the low-hanging fruit? I mean, we, we uh, understand, as both of you explained, that there are 
Um, there are hard times ahead strategically and tactically for President uh, Cyril Ramaphosa and those who will form part of his uh, cabinet. But what are the low-hanging fruit for him to pick in order to bring us that stability uh, uh, that uh, Ibrahim Fakir is talking about? I'm not sure there are any clear uh, low-hanging fruit. Very, very difficult issues. And maybe the, the, the first uh, issues to be tackled that that would bring strong uh, positive impacts would be to clean up the state-owned enterprises, um, put in place proper boards, uh, and prosecute those who have infringed the law so that people can see consequences to bad behavior. And maybe that's the, the low-hanging fruit that cuts across all these, these issues we're raising, is uh, there has to be some kind of sanction for the bad behavior that's taken place. So clean up the SOEs, uh, I think, would be a, a, a big one. Uh, the next one is reduce the size of the state. And by that, I mean reduce the number of departments. I'm not saying we should simply fire public servants, because if you do that, you end up retrenching those with capacity who come back as consultants and they take the packages because they've got the skills to be to be employable later or in other contexts and you end up with the dead wood that you really want to get rid of. So reducing the wage bill is another important uh, task that he's going to have to address. And that's not going to be uh, that easy to do. And I'm very cautious about pursuing uh, early retrenchments to achieve that goal. Um, fighting corruption and just tightening up on uh, procurement, supply chain management in government. Uh, he's just got to resuscitate the Procurer General's office. He's got to make it a permanent appointment for someone to hit that. And they've got to enforce the bans of variation for price of the goods and services that government procures. Doing those few things that I've mentioned could save government billions and billions uh, in 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 the, the medium term strategic budget framework, and that money can be used to service debt, to revitalise the important SOEs, and to uh, provide uh, finance for social services, building toilets at schools, uh, absolute disgrace. They've just got to use the money that's available and generate resources to improve the conditions of learners at schools, and and those are not those sorry those are not hard things to do. Building toilets is remarkably easy, actually. South Africa's got some of the best technology for environmentally friendly toilets. Plastic toilets. Safe, secure, hygienic, much cheaper than building brick toilets. These are the kinds of things that can be done quite quickly. Oh, 11883-0702, Ibrahim Fakir and Professor Ivor Sarakinski are my guests. We are looking at uh, the um, after election results, we're looking at the implications. We're looking at uh, some of the motivations behind some of the conversation that has been taking place. And I'm interested to hear your thoughts. What do you believe uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa and the ANC's mandate is uh, nationally? Uh, what, it, what is it? What do you think it is? Um, Ibrahim says that it's basically, what did you say, stabilization and? Recovery. And recovery. Uh, 11883 is the number. 21 Let's talk a little bit about Gauteng. And, of course, uh, you'll know, uh, Ibrahim, that uh, the NEC had a special meeting uh, that ended earlier today. And they've now announced the... 
um, uh, premier candidates for the various uh, um, provinces. It appears that there may be some issues in uh, KwaZulu-Natal. Have you any line of sight as to what's going on there? Um, well, I thought I thought it was Mr. Zikalala who, yeah. who who was who was the person anointed for KwaZulu Natal, but you know I can't be sure um, sitting in Gauteng. Uh, so, so I mean a much better place to talk about sure. Gauteng, but not not KZN. Yeah. Before we talk about Gauteng, Oprah, I just want to add two things yep. to to what I was saying. Yeah. There are two other quick wins. Uh, one is in the ambit of Ramaphosa and the other is not. So the first, uh, and tagging on to what I was talking about in terms of cutting government expenditure, there's one other item that needs to go, and that's the kind of super- superfluous travel, the superfluous events, the superfluous strategic planning and uh, compliance-driven public participation events. Those cost billions, and many of them have no 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 product, no outcome, no output, which is actually linked to them. So, again, let's not crudify what I'm saying. I'm not saying they mustn't happen. Yeah. I'm simply saying you have to be prudent about what needs to happen and the extent to which it needs to happen. And that's a further cost saving. Yeah. Last, what can be done is can be done in the private sector. Those of Ramaphosa's friends who wanted to exhort everyone to vote for Ramaphosa and give him in excess of a 62% mandate, which we argued was not necessarily the best thing, they must now put their money where their mouths were. They must now temper their long-term incentives. I'm saying this into, you know, well aware that these are highly skilled executives who can go anywhere around the world. So, and I'm not a, a raging socialist, but I am saying if you want to help Ramaphosa, temper some of those things, the bonuses, the share options, and so on, and cross-subsidize entry-level jobs, because the state, in the short term, is never going to create these jobs. And if you're going to help Ramaphosa along, don't tell people to vote for him. Do something which alleviates the pressures in society, it reduces the inequality, it gets people into jobs, and may have a sort of um, multiplier effect on spending and growth. Indeed. I mean, you, you saw people that would have been, I suppose, considered non-traditional ANC uh, supporters uh, in the media space. Um, Peter Bruce was quite uh, clear to say that he is supporting Cyril uh, Ramaphosa and the ANC for interesting reasons. You saw The Economist, a well-known economic uh, magazine coming out and supporting and many uh, business people, including F.W. de Klerk, uh, might I say, supporting um, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa in this particular way. And I say it de- deliberately, Ibrahim, when I say Cyril Ramaphosa, because they all seem to be saying Cyril Ramaphosa and not necessarily the ANC. To what extent is that line of demarcation, that it's Cyril Ramaphosa that we are supporting and not necessarily the ANC, to what extent could that line of demarcation, that segregation, as it were, in that message, um, stunt what you are calling for as a low-hanging uh, fruit from those non-traditional supporters of the ANC? It, it, it's, it's simple. There's no, there's no rocket science to it. They need to just do what is required in society, not for Ramaphosa, because you cannot demarcate and separate Ramaphosa from the ANC. It's just not possible. So... It's quite simple. You want to support the guy, do what's necessary. I hear you. Professor Ivor Sarakinsky and, and Ibrahim, I'm coming back on, on the issue of, 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 of Gauteng. Uh, the 
the choosing of the president happens in parliament and he is basically elected by the national assembly the members of parliament that will be made up of the i suppose the lists of the various parties that have made it to parliament theoretically speaking yeah is it possible that given the divisions within the anc uh and the factions that still and overtly exist within the anc theoretically speaking is it possible that a faction for example that is not necessarily pro cyril ramaphosa could uh, could collude with a different party say the da or the eff to to make a different candidate rise to the position of presidency so the, the vote for the president in the national assembly is a secret ballot it's not a public ballot like most other ballots in the national assembly yeah and this means that the anti ramaphosa people in the anc caucus could vote no and if enough people in the da and eff vote no you might have an unintended outcome of him not getting the majority i think that's highly unlikely uh but it is a theoretical possibility uh if that were to happen then there would be some serious turmoil uh, some serious uh, problems but on the premier issue the the one premier that that's an indicator of trouble to come is northwest they've delayed a decision on the northwest premier oh, northwest and that, yes and northwest uh, uh kzn is decided it is silesikalala uh but northwest is undecided and that's a clear indication of turmoil yeah yeah So Ibrahim the ANC got a 50.190 uh voter support and 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 I I've heard journalists and people that are supposed to be aware of these things that that's not a 51.51.9% uh, um vote what does this mean I mean uh, I heard uh, uh, Banyazali Sufi that it's a win is a win you know Is it is it really a win this 50.19% uh, well, win? Mr. Lesufi is correct only in the most narrow and technicist uh, way. So yeah, it's 50, so they've put the post in whatever little percentage they got over it uh, pushes this pushes them over the threshold. A fraction reality, of a percentage. Yeah, the fraction of a percentage. I mean, you can so is a fraction of a fraction. Yeah. Uh, given given the fractiousness of the NC. <laughs> But, but look, what it eventually came down to, Aubrey, is the distribution of seats. Now, on the basis of the formula, which is which is well provincial level, is much easier. Where you take the total number of valid votes cast, you divide it by the number of seats which are available, seventy-three plus one, uh, and then you add one uh, for an additional seat, so that you have remainders. and then you take the quotient or the portion of votes cast for each party and you divide it by that quotient that will tell you how many seats you get yeah. and they managed to get just the one additional seat because uh, they had the highest remainder yeah and that's how they got the majority in the legislature so they are now sitting in the legislature with one seat more than all of the opposition together Now what happens is that from that legislature are going to be appointed MECs and the premier. Yeah. So they're going to have to look if they want to control all the portfolio committees in the legislature. 
they're going to have to look, even though it's not necessary for them to find an alliance partner or a, a coalition partner, they're going to have to have to find people who they can rely on to run some of the uh, portfolio committees, unless, of course, they're going to be magnanimous and say we're going to give certain opposition uh, MPLs um, portfolios to run in the legislature. That will be important. It will be important because it then means that the provinces can start playing a real oversight role uh, in terms of service delivery that is envisaged in terms of the intergovernmental relations system. And what are the unasked questions in this particular scenario, Ibrahim? I, 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 I suppose intuitively I'm feeling that sure, as you said, that um, it is a fractious win. Um, I suppose if this was a, a, a game between um, Mamelodi Sundowns and Orlando Pirates, you know, <laughs> somebody would be able to declare wins a win. But I, I get a feeling that uh, there are certain questions that haven't been asked about this particular scenario that might render this not such a, a win. Well, it, it, look, this is all going to be enmeshed in ANC, internal ANC politics because you're now going to have provinces which, which didn't like, and before people used to call them the Premier League provinces, which didn't like Gauteng and said, yeah, Gauteng is run by the clever blacks. That's why they hated Zuma and they actually lost, uh, you know, because yep. they, they, they weren't uh, lock, stock and barrel with the rest of the ANC. So that kind of debate is going to reemerge. Uh, thankfully for Gauteng, as Prof is pointing out, Northwest maybe they can't settle on a premier candidate because they're a bit more fractious. At least the Gauteng ANC is a bit more coherent mm. uh, and is not as divided or divisive as some of the other provinces are. But there are still other questions that have to be faced around the demographic representativity of the Gauteng ANC, uh, some of the demographic communities, for example, coloreds and Indians and whites represented in the Gauteng ANC, at least in the upper echelons. Yeah. Are they going to be given positions in government? Uh, you know, you had you had Ms. Combi Courts uh, berating, yes. uh, yeah. berating her Indian and, and white uh, yeah. uh, bureaucrats, the senior bureaucrats, yeah. uh, on the basis of their race. So you know, that kind of debate is going to re-emerge in Gauteng, and there's very important work to do. I mean, for the ANC, this is very worrying, because look, you're holding the biggest the generator of growth, GDP, and potential for redistribution, and you don't have influence in that province anymore, and you also don't control two of the larger cities. Is this a win? No, it's not. Oh, double one eight eight three oh seven oh two. I thought so. Oh two one double four six oh five six seven. Tuliki is in Limpopo. Hi, Tuliki. Hello, Opi. Yeah, hi, Tuliki. Go ahead. What is your question or your comment? My comment was that I think our government has to change our constitution a little bit, yeah. Yeah of the miners who are committing crime, who are killing people. They should consider it that if they're thinking about their future, what about justice of those people that like they are they are killing? How what about justice of the people of South Africa? But why, why, why would that require a constitutional amendment, Dulikia? I would imagine that our law, our constitution is very clear on what happens to people that, uh, that to do the kinds of crimes that you are talking about. Why, why, why do you think we'd need to change it? They are not sentencing them. They are not because they are saying they are minors. 
I see. I see what you see. All right. Tuliki in Limpopo. Yeah, so you're saying minors should go to jail, eh? Yeah, they should if they like there's proof that they did do those things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I, 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 I hear you. And I, and I suppose there is provision for crimes committed by minors in our country, but uh, uh, perhaps it's a conversation that we can, um, yeah, we can talk about. Uh, Prof, the issue of the constitution, constitutionality versus uh, the what seemed during the Zuma years to be a, a very strong desire to lean to majoritarianism um, and therefore run away from the rule of law at some point, Th- that was the feeling. There is, of course, the issue of the EFF, the Section 25 of the Constitution, uh, and how the land reform needs to be dealt with. Are we likely to see real um, changes in the Constitution? One. Two. Are we likely to see the follow-up to that that is going to result in uh, what people, for whatever it is that they mean when they say real real, uh, um, land reform, are we likely to see expropriation without compensation um, in this country under Esil Ramaphosa government with, of course, the EFF there with 44 seats in, in government? Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure we're going to see significant or many constitutional changes. And I think that one of the things that Ramaphosa has done pretty well is that he set up uh, these advisory commissions to give him advice on how to act. And in doing that, he's setting a precedent. So the SARS Commission, uh, the Commission on the Suitability of Officials in the NPA to uh, either hold the office or be removed, or even a special body uh, set up to advise him on who the new head of the NPA should be. Those are all quite significant in terms of putting in place systems to curtail executive power. And these are the executive powers that uh, Zuma abused in terms of putting in people that he wanted in order for them not to do the things that need to be done. Uh, Sean and and others in the NPA come to mind here. Mm. So he's starting to fill in the gaps with process on how to limit executive power without amending the Constitution. And I think that that's very powerful and that's very long-sighted and very wise. So I'm not seeing major uh, constitutional amendments there because he's doing it kind of through precedence and, and practice and convention setting. The, the constitutional amendment on land is, is incredibly complicated and uh, it's been approved by Parliament and it's not clear whether it would survive a constitutional court challenge. And the reason I think for that is that the amendment is not adding or taking away any powers that currently exist in the Constitution. And the Constitutional Court might be concerned about amending the Constitution without adding anything to the Constitution. And what they might suggest is set up a pass a law that uh, sets out your objectives in terms of uh, land uh, redistribution and how you're going to do it. And if, they, if, if it goes in that direction, and it, it's not impossible because Ramaphosa himself has been quite cautious about uh, uh, expropriation without co- uh, um, compensation. If it goes in that direction, 
there's a document already that gives you the blueprint, and it was chaired by former President Halema Mutlante, which set out the failings and the successes and the needs and the requirements for effective uh, land uh, redistribution. But they, they, those, 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 do that. Th- those recommendations by former President Halema Mutlante uh, were quite clear in that the problem is not with the Constitution, uh, Professor Ivor yes. Sarakinsky, if I'm, if I'm correct. I mean, uh, so to, to what extent then, and uh, perhaps Ibrahim can come in uh, on this one, is the growth of the EFF, which has been a champion of the, um, the message of land and, uh, and so forth, uh, to what extent is this going to make President Sil Ramaphosa and uh, Julius Malema, who some have been suggesting the president and certain uh, leaders of the ANC have been um, sort of courting uh, some sort of a two-nathering so that they can come closer and perhaps pass certain things through, and they probably need them now that they've got a, a slightly muted majority. But to what extent is the issue of the land, the issue of the constitutional amendment, going to bring these two parties on a, on a collision course? And what does the uh, EFF's 44 seats mean for this sixth parliament? But I think the, the issue here is that Ramaphosa and the ANC have a very different understanding to what yeah. uh, land redistribution means to the EFF. And I'm not even sure, and Ibrahim will go into more detail on this, that land was a, mo- a major mobilizing force sure. in the EFF's campaign. Ibrahim? No, it wasn't. Um, you know, land was sort of ranked seventh or eighth after housing, transport, health, education, crime, corruption, uh, and then land and free higher education. So it's very low on, uh, very low on people's sort of expectations. But you know, politicians whip up the rhetoric and suddenly make it the policy issue. Yeah. So depending on what they want to achieve, and clearly Ramaphosa doesn't need the EFF necessarily at national level, but they certainly do need them in Gauteng. Depending on what trade-offs they make will depend on what demands the EFF make on them if there is any two-nadron. The second is we know there's an incentive for some people in ANC for different reasons to want the EFF back in the fold. The one wants them because they have some ideological affinity. They also have some skeleton not small on Yana, uh, but big skeletons, yeah. which they, they have in common. So they want them into, so that they can fight a common fight. Yeah. Another faction wants them in because they believe they can neutralize them. Uh, and they don't have to use them from inside as they have been using them. So for those reasons, they want them, but for different reasons, right? Now, both of them, I think, spell a uh, very, very, very bad omen if they do. It's better to have them out as a third party, with stronger oversight, uh, increasing the caucus of the opposition. It might make for better responsiveness. But, you know, these are politicians. They do what's in the short-term interest, not what's in the interest of the country. Why do you think that two-nadering won't happen between the ANC and the DA? They've sounded very similar, uh, I'm afraid to say, Ibrahim, uh, about different things. Of course, they won't admit that, but they've sounded very similar about certain issues uh, around the land, albeit the ANC has said, oh, expropriation without compensation. But other than that, they've sounded very, very similar. Uh, Why do you think, if you don't think so, that the ANC would not two-nader the DA? Well, 
normatively they should. Uh, that would be the best option for the society and for the country and for policy stability. But they won't because of the hubris, because of mm. the qualification, because of the egos. Uh, and I can expound on that. He has a, a wording which he says, you know, all of the campaign, if you look at the DA, the symbolism of what they promised uh, tries to be attractive. But that symbolism thinks people are irrational, that they can vote for people who say, let's close the borders or let's double social grants or let's have a policeman on every street. I mean, for a, for a supply-side oriented party like the DA to suddenly wish these things is taking us to the fiscal cliff, even worse, probably into the fiscal abyss. But, but you know, I, I mean, I don't know why they had that in their policy proposals, because it's clearly not what the DA stands for. Mm. Mm. Ivor? Well, the, the, the moderates in the ANC and the, the DA have so much in common. And I think part of the, the problem is the the, the adversarial election campaigning that both sides got involved in. Let's say the ANC. The ANC's uh, election was based on, we're sorry, forgive us, give us another chance. And they didn't really attack their opponents. The DA played a very strong attack game. And in that attack game, they said horrible things about the ANC. Uh, most of it uh, correct and just. <laughs> but in terms of uh, after the election, there's not much room to kiss and make up now. Uh, and, and I think that that was unfortunate. They didn't think after the election. Yeah. They were so keen to mobilize people to vote for them in the le- election. And now they're caught. They're isolated from uh, a Tunadaran with the party that's closest to them. Yeah. And if there are going to be coalitions or alliances, it, it's going to be the EFFDA. Uh, song again, and we've seen what that means in Joburg and Chwani uh, already, and it, it's not a good song. Is the DA going towards the dustbin of irrelevance, uh, Ibrahim? No, look, I mean, I think that's a bit too hasty. There's, there's, there's many things still available to them. They, if they can get their messaging right, if they can get right who they are, they can decide who they are rather than being everything to everyone. If they can stop with the gimmicky uh, sort of you know, the gimmicky activities and, and the pure public relations. I mean, one South Africa for all. Which party doesn't say it's one South Africa for all? Mm. You know, no party doesn't want that. So you've got to get that kind of thing right. You've got to decide who you are. Forget the polling. I mean, one of the things that people don't like to talk about is, look, the DA was decampaigned by some of its own pollsters. Uh, and and I'm, let me be blunt here. The Institute for Race Relations, I think, decampaigned the, the, the DA. To be, to be frank, because they were fighting and taking internal factional parts. Mm. Uh, so, you know, there, there are certain things they can put right, but they've got to put the house in order. I don't think that, you know, it's, we always say it's the end of the DA, but if they don't get right what they need to get right, which is the messaging, who they want to appeal to, how they want to appeal to them, what the identity of the party is, then, of course, it might be the end. Professor Ivar Sarakinsky and Ibrahim Faki, thank you very much for joining me. Really appreciate your insights. Much appreciated, sirs. Thank you very much. Great stuff. It's midnight time for Eyewitness News.